So this is the most boring part of the show where I'm just going to give everybody a couple ground rules just to try to make sure we get good audio. This is my favorite part. Yeah, this is so and this actually this is mostly ironically for Stuart, who is my longest running co-host. Most of these rules are for him. <laughs> I've broken every one of them every time. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matt. Hello, Stuart. This is the Hi. Internal Medicine Podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I've now got multiple people interrupting. This is great. I'm Dr. Matthew Otto here with multiple co-hosts, and uh, let's introduce them. Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. That's me. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Paul Williams. Hi, Matt. Hi, Stuart. And uh, and we got we have one of our correspondents, Dr. Brian Brown. Hi, Brian. Hey guys, happy to be here. I am not impressed with his musical talents. <laughs> what what is that about? <laughs> I mean, give just, me a chance. Uh, yeah, he's, he's actually quite talented. Yeah, Brian, why don't you why don't you give the audience a one liner about yourself so they can get to know you? All right. So I am a 28 year old internal medicine resident with a past history of mandolin playing and science fiction writing, uh, presenting with interests in primary care, education, <laughs> refugee <laughs> health care, and talking about science and medicine with whomever will listen. He what is a pro. I think, he is a pro. I think Stuart, I yeah. Him. Yeah, Stuart, sorry, sorry that Stuart interrupted you, but Brian... Yeah. Uh, Brian has much more much more experience in sound and video than we do, and he could sing, which is uh, so. We'll we'll link to his YouTube, uh, his, some of his YouTube stuff. Jeez. You should check it out. Yeah, yeah. You might get like five views now uh, from from all of our listeners. <laughs> it's, it's, isn't his uh, on his YouTube page? It says unsigned musician, I think, or something like that. Oh, that's old. Yeah. Okay. I mean, well, I mean, I'm still unsigned. I guess that's not. <laughs> so, so <laughs> that's an update. That part is fully current. So. You've given up the dreams. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I see. Stuart, I Anyhow. believe we have some obligations to fulfill. Yes, yes, we do. So the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, educational, and information purposes only, and the topics topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the, the, the views and statements expressed on the podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash at Memorial Hospital and affiliate programs. If indeed there are any, pretty much we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Thank you, Stuart. I I still don't know if we fulfilled any obligations, but uh, no. I feel safer now. Let's do some picks of the week. Mm. Cue that music, Paul. Hey, Paul. <laughs> how about how about your pick of the week? <laughs> hey, Matt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I. I genuinely can't remember if I recommended this before, but it's good enough. I'll, I don't mind recommending it twice. Did I, did I recommend the train spotting sequel? No. I, I, oh, I thought he did. It's, anything's possible, I guess. We'll recommend it again if I didn't. <laughs> but it's a, so it's a, it happens 20 years after the original train spotting movie, which is directed by Danny Boyle. It's the entire cast. And it's just, it's probably one of my favorite movies of 2017 and no one's talking about it. And I can't quite figure out why. So it's, it's a, 
it focuses on sort of a lot of stuff, but it's it's almost kind of like boyhood in the fact that everyone's 20 years older and makes me feel 20 years mm. older, which is actually <laughs> not the part that I like about it. Um, but I, I, you know, there's there's a lot of redemption stuff in it. There's a, sort of a lot of um, stuff about <clears throat> relationships, both with friends and with family. And, and it's it's overall considering the topic of sort of former heroin addicts. It's actually kind of a sweet movie. So it's it's and visually spectacular, too. So I don't mm. know why. It's not more critically lauded, but if you if you like the first train spotting, I would highly recommend watching the sequel. Yeah, I very okay, much so like the first movie. Uh, I would I actually it, want to watch that now. Is it sad that I have to look up the uh, plot summary whenever you mention these? <laughs> Brian, how about your pick of the week? Yeah, I have one. Uh, so there's this movie that's like a Netflix original movie called Okja, O-K-J-A. Okay. And the reason in particular I want to recommend it is because when you look at the the thumbnail for it, it looks like a kid's movie, but it's very much not. Um, so it's directed by this guy, Bong Joon-ho, who also did uh, Snowpiercer. So he's got a cool visual style. Um, it has a really awesome cast, and it almost views almost like a Wes Anderson movie, but it's about these super pigs who are sent around the world. And it's about this little girl in Korea who grows up with a super pig, but then the pig has to go back to the, to the factory where, where bad things happen and adventure ensues. And, uh, it's a, it's a wild ride and, uh, you'll laugh and you'll cry. Is yeah. it kid friendly or family no. friendly? No. <laughs> Dang, damn it. Gosh, guys. Not if it's anything like Snowpiercer. Right. Uh, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> this is better than Snowpiercer. Yeah. Okay. So if I want to pick a bad movie, I can pick either one. <laughs> um, uh, depending <laughs> on your definition of bad, uh, I'm going to recommend a, a a TED Talk by Ray Dalio. He and and he is a hedge fund manager, but that's not necessarily why I'm recommending this. I don't really care too much about hedge funds, but I I believe he's the most successful hedge fund manager of all time. It's Bridgewater Capital is the hedge fund that he manages, but his head uh, his talk is is really talking about his unique leadership style and the culture that he developed within Bridgewater Capital, where sometime in the past in his career, he lost a ton of money. Almost, the company almost went totally bankrupt. And then he put in a system of kind of checks and balances and this sort of just like radical honesty and feedback within the company. And I think it's really interesting. I, I don't think it's necessarily something we should apply on the medical wards, but I'm just very interested in feedback and leadership. And I think his talk is just a really great example of a unique way to approach it. Okay. And so my pick of the week is actually the opposite of a pick of week. I want to redact a prior pick of the week. That's right. I want to redact one. Okay. So my prior pick of the week was uh, an upcoming series called The Good Doctor. I watched the first episode last night <laughs> and it sucked. <laughs> It sucked. <laughs> oh my gosh. You've worked with me, Matt. Okay, I'm on the spectrum. That was horrific. They tried to equate autism to both gender and racial disparities. I'm, I, I literally wanted to throw something at my TV when they said that. <laughs> I could not believe that they were saying that. Like, th this is just unrealistic. The whole, the whole aspect of, of how they're vetting him, completely unrealistic. And a lot of the mannerisms... They basically take someone who who they present as having mild to moderate autism and they present it as if it's just this incredibly severe case. This guy would have would have washed out in medical school in the clerkships if he could not answer on the wards, if he had some type of personality issue, this would have been vetted out in, in the clerkships or if not vetted out, it would have been addressed. He would have had some some intervention at that time. This would have not have made its way to 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 residency. I just I, it's completely unrealistic. And I, I simply cannot recommend the show unless it does a complete 180. 
So well, two thumbs up would watch again is what I heard there. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. The Good Doctor, what was it called? Paul, you're it's a great listener. The Good Doctor. I, I just love how you recommended it sight unseen. That's that's just great. <laughs> yeah, well. Well, I, mean, I think we all learned a valuable lesson, Stuart. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to set up, I'm going to quickly set up the episode here. I don't know why Stuart is sharing his screen with us and the weird news articles he's been reading. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to set up this topic. The topic, we're going to be talking about vasculitis, giant cell arteritis. Our guest is Dr. Rebecca Sharim. She is a rheumatologist. She attended medical school and also did residency in internal medicine at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia. Somewhere in there, she did an internship in psychiatry, but decided that internal medicine was too awesome and came and did her uh, residency at internal medicine. Following her residency, she completed a fellowship in rheumatology at the University of Pennsylvania, and then she returned to Temple as an assistant professor in rheumatology. This is a great discussion with Becca. We go over lots of just kind of basic need-to-know information about vasculitis, what labs you should order, the exam, findings, and, uh, and how to treat all this. So it's tremendously helpful, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is Dr. Yeah, Matthew hello. Watto here with many co-hosts, almost too many to count, but uh, let's go through one at a time. As always, Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Hello, that's me. Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Hello, and Dr. And Dr. Brian Brown. Hi, everyone. Brian, did you want to reveal your middle name? It's Matthew, but spelled wrong with Ooh. one T. Oh, that's Ooh, disgusting. That's confusing. <laughs> <laughs> they told me it was intentional until I was like 18 and then... Mm. <laughs> I'm sorry for you. That's okay. You're still... Uh, I'm still willing to record with you. All right. And our guest tonight is Dr. Rebecca Sharim. She is a rheumatologist and she's here to talk to us about giant cell arteritis and, and just some of the basics of vasculitis. And uh, we've already agreed ahead of time. We're going to refer to you tonight as Becca Becca, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Yes, we are very excited to have you on the show. And I, I wanted to start off asking the same question. I'm not very original. I'm going to ask the same question I ask everybody. Can you give the audience a one-liner so that they can get to know you a little better? Sure. I am a 34-year-old rheumatologist, wife and mom to my one-year-old baby, Natalie. And I don't have a middle name. Ah, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> In, in, Julie. Oops, wait. I'm thinking of Julie Andrews. Never mind. Sorry, my my brain was somewhere else. <laughs> oh man, that uh, that doesn't probably surprise anybody that's listening, Stuart. <laughs> How about you ask a question, <laughs> Paul? I'm gonna defer to you right now. Come back to me, please. All right, I'll go to my standby, Becca. Um, I the question I always ask is, and it doesn't even have to be a medical book, but what book do you recommend? You know what? I'm just going to stop the sentence right there. What book do you recommend? This is a low stakes, <laughs> no pressure. Any book at all. It can be a cookbook. Just go to town. Everybody else panics at this. So just pick a book. Okay. Well, I was prepared for it for a physician, um, but anyone can, anyone would like this book, I think. But um, the book that I was going to say is Radical Acceptance. I don't know if anyone's heard of this by Tara Brock. I've read um, it. You did? Yeah. So. I, I really liked about this book because um, it incorporates some Buddhist teachings and mindfulness, but I think it's particularly helpful to people in the medical field that tend to be really 
critical of themselves. And so the book teaches self-compassion and things like that. And I found it very helpful. I, I did too. I, I probably, I probably should read it again at some point. It's definitely, I think that's the biggest, like the biggest value of that book is the, uh, you know, is rehabbing the way that you talk to yourself, which, uh, as you said, can be, can be pretty brutal sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Paul, you're starting to sound like the Alex Trebek Jeopardy character where he's like, just <laughs> any, just say a letter. <laughs> well, you know, you've had so many guests panic. I'm like, what book would you recommend? Like, oh, books. Oof. So I just, I, I'm just trying to keep it easy. I don't want to stress anybody out. Thank Wonderful. you. Brian, would you like to ask a question? Mm. So, uh, uh, Becca, um, as a resident, I guess I can ask you, uh, what advice do you have for maybe medical students and residents uh, about finding joy in practicing medicine? Ooh, hmm. that's a good question. Hmm. Um, well, I think you really have to, I think you can get overwhelmed with a lot of the, the things that are going on in the medical world, but really what it comes down to is the patient. And I find joy out of like individual patient interactions as opposed to any other thing. So like when you're in the room with a patient and you know that you've touch them in some way or help them. And that is, that's really where you have to find your joy, I think, and not really focus on all the other stuff. Hmm. I agree. Excellent. Now, so is it, I've oh, been, it's my turn now. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So, uh, Becca, who I've just learned is not Julie Andrews. I have a question for you. <laughs> so, uh, could you tell us something about yourself that we will just never forget? So, I think what I would say is that when I was a second year in medical school, I was playing ping pong in the uh, school um, faculty, student faculty center. And um, I was playing with a guy who smashed the ball really hard and it went right into my eye. And I had, uh, I ended up having a hyphema, which I didn't know what that was, but it's when the anterior chamber of your eye just kind of with blood. Oh so I went gosh. to the emergency room and I didn't have, I couldn't see for like a month or two. I had to wear like a patch and I had to just like listen to all my lectures. I didn't do very well in microbiology. And to this day, that's like my weakest point because I couldn't see at that time. Um, but it's funny because when I did my emergency medicine rotation, they all remembered me because they're like, hyphemas <laughs> are typically from football injuries, not from ping pong injuries. <laughs> wow. I'm sorry to laugh yeah, so was... hard at that, but that's a great story. <laughs> it's pretty funny, yeah. No, but you say if you've ever seen, if you ever seen a high team in the ER, you're like a celebrity. Like they actually just they bring students and residents by. They get oh yeah, super excited about it. So oh yeah, yeah and you have to go pants. back every day to the ophthalmologist until all the blood clears. So it's like a full time job. Oh wow. So from that point on, your middle name was Hyphema. Got <laughs> there you go. That's you can, you can give me that name. <laughs> well, that is a great. A great transition, Stuart. I think at this point <laughs> we should move into the main topic, which you know we're going to talk about. That was a horrible transition. Yeah, well, that's that's what we're known for, obviously. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna transition now. Brian, would you like to read us a case from Cashlack Memorial Hospital? I would love to. So uh, we have a 75 year old woman with a past history of hypertension who presented to the ED with three days of worsening left sided headache now with left-sided vision loss during a Norwegian folk festival. On review of systems, she also endorses a week of soreness of her shoulders and hips. This has never happened to her before. Before we just jump into this case, I think uh, giving us just like kind of an overview, Becca, of 
vasculitis and kind of where you start when you're thinking about this. If you could just kind of maybe define it for the audience and kind of lay out some broad terms. Sure. Um, so I'm glad we're talking about vasculitis because I think it's one of the trickiest subjects in rheumatology for sure. Um, so really it's just, in, you know, vasculitis inflammation of the blood vessels and we categorize them as you know, into large, medium and small vessels. Um, there's also, you know, variable size vasculitis, but really, um, it's kind of, it's not so black and white in practice. So there's like kind of a overlap between the large, medium and small, um, and the, the categorization, the nomenclature can get very confusing. And, and the Chapel Hill um, consensus is the nomenclature that we typically use. So when you think about large, there's Takayasu's and there's giant cell arteritis. And when you think about medium-sized vessels, there's classically polyarteritis nodosa and Kawasaki. And then the small vessel vasculitis, um, there's, there's a couple big buckets. So the big buckets would be the Anka vasculitides the um, immune complex mediated vasculitides, and then kind of the others. So if you want to break down the ANCA vasculitides a little further, you have the, and these are all the big names, they get confusing, right? But microscopic polyangitis. Mm. There's the EGPA, which is eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangitis, which used to be named Churg-Strauss. And then there's granulomatosis polyangitis, GPA, which used to be called Wegner's. So those are your ANCA vasculitides. And then you have your immune complex mediated vasculitides. So those include cryoglobulinemic vasculitis um, and uh, GBM vasculitis um, and then an HSP as well, Hinakshan line. And then you have kind of the others. So you can have small vessel vasculitis from a number of different things. So drugs, medications, cancer, infections, you can have them secondary to other autoimmune diseases like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. So I think the nomenclature can get very tricky. And if you look up the Chapel Hill um, nomenclature, that can kind of help organize it. But those are, those are your major um, buckets for vasculitis. So you really have to think about, like when you're thinking about symptoms, it's like really important to just think about what organs and what, what body parts are affected by those vessels. And then imagine everything that can happen if those vessels lose, um, blood supply from the inflammation. And then you think about the outcomes of those. And what kind of symptoms are you talking about for our audience and Matt? Yeah. Thank you. So, <laughs> You're welcome. So, over, so kind of like central to all of the vasculitides, um, anytime there's like that strong degree of inflammation in the body. So you're thinking about systemic symptoms. So, um, with all of the, the different size, um, vasculitides, you can have, you know, fevers, fatigue, anorexia, um, and you can have, um, weight loss, night sweats. So that you can see in all of them. And then when you think about the specific sizes of the vessel, so, um, if you think about the large vessels in the, you know, with Takayasu's or GCA, you're thinking about the branches of the aorta. So you're thinking about, um, you know, patients that are going to have blood pressure differences in their arms, or they're going to present with like claudication, upper extremity claudication. Um, if you're thinking about medium sized vessels, those are supplying the gut or, you know, a lot of the times questions that come up are about like the testicles are involved because these are some of the medium vessels. And then the small vessels are the ones 
you know, the symptoms that you're probably used to thinking about a lot. So if you think about the small vessels that are going to the skin, if they, um, if you, if those have interrupted blood flow, you're going to get palpable purpura. So the little spots on the skin, or you're going to get mononeuritis multiplex with wrist drop and foot drop or glomerulonephritis, you know, those, you have to think about what you're supplying. So they, those are very specific to the size. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a yes. that's a great summary. I I think where where it sort of gets like murky mm-hmm. is where you like like you said the the small vessel stuff. There's there's so many categories underneath there, and mm-hmm. I I think the, at least the way that I've always approached it as an internist is like when I see a patient, I just try to think if this is vasculitis, like I can order some basic tests, but I just want to have my radar up. Like this could be a vasculitis because in general, those patients are always going to get someone else involved, whether it's uh, rheumatology or nephrology, depending on, you know, what the clinical picture is, is if you had to, so you, you told us the symptoms to look out for. Let's say we had a patient who we thought, okay, they, they're having the fatigue, they're having the fevers, the weight loss, maybe there's some skin findings, or maybe they have some claudication. What, what would be like your basic lab workup that you would, that you would recommend to people to, to order? Because I think mm-hmm. people go crazy with like ordering these panels with just all these super specialized antibodies. But what, what do you think is a good starting point? So, so that's a really good question. And that's definitely true. So if you have someone who has large vessel symptoms. So upper extremity claudication, or, you know, we're going to talk more about temporal arteritis. So jaw claudication, temporal tenderness. If you have someone that has signs of like a large vessel vasculitis, you don't necessarily need to do that like extreme workup for all the small vessel vasculitides. So, you know, an ANCA you want to order if someone is having those things that we talked about, like rashes, glomerulonephritis, like lung involvement, DAH. Um, But someone with temporal tenderness unless there's other things going on, you're not thinking about getting those panels for the small vessel vasculitis. So small vessel vasculitis, like I said, it can happen in the setting of all different autoimmune diseases, infections. So there's that, that you can actually justify a very large lab workup if someone has those findings of a small vessel vasculitis. Um, if someone has a large vessel vasculitis, so if we're talking about temporal arteritis, um, you know, you're going to check in inflammatory markers and basic labs to look for signs of inflammation, but it's not, you don't necessarily need to do that entire panel. Um, you know, inflammation of the aorta, if you see aortitis or anything like that, you'll also want to think about infections or syphilis. We always check in RPR, um, mm-hmm. but there's no labs that are really specific to a large vessel vasculitis. You're, you're looking mostly for signs of inflammation, whether that's anemia, thrombocytosis, transaminitis, um, and elevated, you know, ESR and CRP, but you don't need to, you don't need to go crazy with that whole panel unless you have reasons that justify ordering all of those mm-hmm. ANCAs and cryos and all that kind of stuff. Cause those will present with small vessel vasculitis findings. Mm. So mm. thanks for that. That's a, that's a nice point that we don't always have to, uh, do all that work up. Um, so it sounds like we're, we're circling a bit around a uh, large vessel in particular. Um, and we're going to be talking mostly about giant cell today. Um, I was wondering if you were to give sort of a one line, maybe Wikipedia style description of, of giant cell, how would you do that? Or in other words, how would you explain it to a patient? Okay. So, so giant cell arteritis is, you know, we think about it as a large vessel vasculitis. So I would say it is 
um, inflammation in the large but also medium-sized vessels, um, specifically those coming off of the aorta. So you think about, you know, the subclavians, um, axillary, vertebral, temporal, ophthalmic. So going into the head and neck and then the upper extremities. So it's inflammation in those medium to large blood vessels there. And then that can potentially cause, you know, damage depending on what vessels are involved. So we think, so it's, again, the nomenclature gets tricky because giant cell arteritis, you know, is used interchangeably with temporal arteritis. Um, but giant cell arteritis doesn't always mean that you have temporal arteritis. It could be right. just the aorta and the main branches involved, or it could mean just temporal arteritis. We, we use it interchangeably with temporal arteritis because the temporal arteries are so superficial that they're easy to biopsy. And so um, that's where we usually go for them, but you know, they're not entirely synonymous. Excellent. You just paraphrased the Wikipedia article. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually, I got it in front of me here. I'm I'm sure she has Wikipedia in front of her too. (laughs) I wonder. (laughs) That's where most of the clinical pearls on this show come from. Wikipedia. (laughs) If the audience hasn't figured it out yet. So Becca, I think one of the things I struggle with is I just, I tend not to think of the vascular disease just because I have almost constitutional symptom fatigue. I feel like I, you know, I almost never <laughs> ask about night sweats anymore because every yeah. patient endorses them and I don't know what to do with it. Oh, yeah. So for, for GCA, what, what is sort of the classic presentation of that? What, what type of presentations to trigger a specific concern for a giant cell arteritis or, uh, yeah. So they usually come in with very, like, it's very significant. So it's not, it's usually not, I mean, I, it's not your typical, you know, I just don't feel good kind of thing. It's, it's pretty extreme and significant and, um, so they're going to, they're going to feel really bad. I mean, the inflammation is, is so, is so, um, high that, um, they're just feeling like something is wrong and you'll, you know, inflammatory markers, you know, often you see the sed rates over a hundred on these patients. Um, so, you know, they'll go from, they'll go from being, living a pretty normal life and, you know, not having that many complaints to feeling really bad. So, there's, you know, it can, it can present very differently. So, you know, just to give you an idea of how, you know, the range that you can have, you can have people coming in with the classic temporal arteritis symptoms. So you think about jaw claudication and when I, and when you say jaw claudication, um, it's not just pain with chewing, it's thing it's claudication. So it's pain as you chew, the longer you chew, the more it hurts. Um, and when you stop, it gets better. So it's, and all these things can be confusing with other, you know, diagnoses as well. So that often, a lot of patients report pain with chewing and it's from TMJ or, you know, um, so jaw claudication, temporal pain, scalp tenderness, um, severe headaches, and then, you know, the, the dreaded like vision changes. Um, so that's kind of one presentation of GCA. Um, but then you can also have these patients that just present with these like systemic complaints. And, you know, we've seen patients that just have these horrible systemic complaints, none of the findings of like temporal arteritis, but you'll see, you know, anemia, thrombocytosis and, and transaminitis on their lab work. And then, um, we actually had a patient, we did a a blind temporal biopsy on them just based on this thing with no known cause. And it was positive. So, um, they can present like that, or, you know, they can present just incidentally when they had imaging for something else and, and they found aortitis, um, on their imaging. 
or they can present, like I said, with like upper extremity claudication, I was shoveling snow and, you know, I got this pain in my arms and then you get imaging and you see subclavian, you know, um, vasculitis. So there's a wide range. I think that we often think about just like the temporal arteritis kind of presentation, but it, it can look like a lot of things. I wanted to circle back, and this is Brian and I were kind of like looking looking this up, uh, preparing for this, and uh, the the chewing gum test is something that was described uh, in New England Journal of, in a, a year or two ago. Uh, and I'll ask you, you've you've kind of already told me, but is this something that people are using that you're aware of? Not that I'm aware of, but I mean, it makes sense. I, I I'm curious to know if people are using it. Yeah. Brian, you could you like tell the audience what that's about, like the? Yeah, so this was interesting. It actually relates to the fact that uh, modern Western diets may actually require less mastication than was traditionally the case. So that's something that's noted in this NEGM article. Um, but the way they did it, they had someone who had some other symptoms of giant cell arteritis um, two years prior. They were doing their steroid taper. They weren't feeling too well. Um, but they denied jaw claudication. Um, but then when they were asked to chew gum at the rate of one chew per second, uh, <laughs> they developed an ache in their right jaw uh, <laughs> two minutes after chewing. Um, and then uh, actually when they increased the steroid dose and then retried this subsequently, it was uh, improved. So. Yeah, just that's that's just one of my favorite articles I've I've come across. <laughs> it, it's it's not even like a full article. It's just like two case cases that they just kind of wrote a letter, I think, to the New England Journal. I love the the fact that KFC bowls are masking our diagnosis for arthritis. <laughs> <laughs> like where it's just because we're eating mush, we can't we don't actually have a GCA threshold. That's fantastic. Uh, Becca, another thing that I wanted to ask that I know the audience would kill me if I don't ask. Tell us, how do we interpret ESR, CRP? What's significantly elevated and what's not? So, um, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people check both. I actually tend to use ESRs um, primarily, so I'll talk about that. Um, so over 100 is very remarkable, right? So you think about, does someone have a, a systemic vasculitis? Do they have a very serious infection or do they have a malignancy? That's, that's typically what runs through our heads in differential. We like to see at least, you know, a SED rate over 50 to really think about GCA and PMR, which I, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but there have been cases of SED rates lower than that, but, but it really brings up a lot of doubt um, if I see it lower than that. So I like to see at least over 50 and it's, you know, commonly over a hundred. Yeah, I, I, I have to say that I also find the CRP a little bit challenging because sometimes people order like the high sensitivity CRP and it seems yeah. like it's, it varies based on different labs by a factor of 10. So I, I just, I never know what to do with it. I'm like, oh, that's elevated. But I, yeah. the CR, the ESR. Now, okay, so we had a, um, he won't mind me saying this, a somewhat crazy rheumatologist uh, working at Cashlack. <laughs> And uh, he would tell us half of the person's age plus 10 if you're a woman. So if it's a 70-year-old woman, like if half is 35. So 45 would be mm – -hmm. 45 or more would be elevated. But if it was mm -hmm. like 40, you'd be like, ah, it's, you know, it's not, not too impressive. And then for men, I think it's just half their age. Is that – Correct. Okay. Yeah. So that's, yeah, we do. Yeah, and it's not, you know, it's not like black and white exactly. But, yeah, that's, the, that's a good general guideline that – 
you know, in an eight year old woman, we're not surprised to see a side rate of 50 and I wouldn't necessarily, you know, become alarmed about it. Uncle Juan was so he's right, not so Stuart. crazy, huh? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's still crazy, but he was right about that. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Uncle Juan. I, I I doubt he listens, but that would be amazing. He does. <laughs> he does listen. Okay. Good. Good. Well, does anyone have a a follow up question here? I think we should talk a little bit about PMR, PMR, polymyalgia rheumatica, and and how it's related. Um, but did anyone have a follow-up question on kind of the, the lab workup before we move on? No. I think one thing I want to like emphasize too, is like, if you're thinking about any kind of vasculitis in rheumatology, you you know, you've seen it's like review of systems and physical exam is so critical to everything that we do. I mean, like you have to do the most detailed review of systems and physical exam to really like uncover all these things. I mean, we're talking, asking about voice changes and hearing changes. So, you know, the more thorough you are, the better differential you can come up with for vasculitis and it can guide your lab work instead of ordering kind of like the pan lab tests. Of course, you just heard Matt say he doesn't even do a review system. He's like, ah, why not? They're all tired. (laughs) I didn't say that. That was Paul. That was me and I stand by it. Oh, sorry. I want to try a quick. In my mind, it's Matt. Becca, I want to try a quick, um, well, not, this is actually, this isn't a recap. I just want to ask the basic, let's just say I see somebody, they have extreme fatigue and uh, maybe a little bit of weight loss. And I'm like, okay, I'm worried maybe this person has a systemic inflammatory process, maybe a vasculitis. I would order a CBC, CMP. So I'm getting both LFTs and the renal function. I would order... Um, a urinalysis because I'm looking for like glomerulonephritis, proteinuria, things like that. And I might, maybe sometimes I would order a TSH as well just because they're fatigued. But yeah. is is that a good starting point? Is there anything else you would put in that initial set of labs? Like just because like if that's completely normal, chances of this person having vasculitis is pretty low, right? I would throw in a sed rate in there. And then oh, yeah, of as course. Long- Sorry, sed yeah. rate. <laughs> and then as long as, I mean, if you did a good like review systems and physical exam and nothing else came up, you know, I would think about, you know, is there age appropriate cancer screening up to date and, and may, and throw in mm-hmm. probably an SPEP. But other than that, you know, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't go chasing autoimmune labs if they had nothing else kind of going for a uh, vasculitis. Aside from the chewing gum test, any special rheumatologic physical exam, if I can speak, that you would do? Like, do I have to press on the people's knuckles and be like, does this feel like well done (laughs) steak or medium rare or whatever you guys do? Well, you want to see if there's any, you know, synovitis or inflammation on their joint exam. But, you you know, if you're thinking, you know, GCA, you definitely, because so, you know, small vessel vasculitis, a lot of times you'll see something on exam with a rash or you'll see the involvement in their kidneys, but a large vessel vasculitis sometimes is a little harder to find. So, definitely what you want to do if you, if they're coming in with systemic things, aside from those labs, you want to check, um, for temporal tenderness. Um, number one, you know, um, who can, who can do a fundoscopic exam and well, not me, but you know, that's something to think about, but, um, you definitely want to check for, um, pulses, make sure pulses are good, upper low extremities. Um, you want to listen for brewies. This is if you're really concerned for a large vessel vasculitis and you want to also, um, check blood pressures in upper and lower extremities and compare them. Um, so those, you know, that would be a good exam for a large vessel. 
Um, one question to follow up uh, specifically about the headache. If the pre presenting symptom is the headache itself, um, how do you think about a headache in an elderly patient uh, distinguishing that of GCA from other possible causes that might be more concerning or more benign? Yeah, that's such a good question. And it's, it's, it's hard. There's no, there's no like good answer for that actually. I mean, it's really like the whole, it's the whole picture. So there's no kind of like headache that you can say, okay, that's, you know, more concerning if it's in the setting of like the jaw claudication or temporal tenderness, and it's right. like a temporal headache, then okay, it's more concerning. And it should be, it should be severe. It shouldn't just be, you know, I have a headache here and there kind of thing, but there's really nothing that you can say just from the headache. Okay. This is GCA. You have to kind of put it together with everything. I have to say, working working as a, at Cashillac, that would be one of the things that would just cause me anxiety in clinic where I'd see somebody, they're like, oh, I have a headache. It's on the right side of my temple. And of course, all my patients were over 50 years old. And I always yeah. had to have giant cell arteritis on my differential. And I'm like, oh, do I really want to go through the whole thing, start them on steroids, send them to ophthalmology, get in the temporal artery biopsy? It, it is like you, you feel like you're you're putting the patient through this like pathway yeah. of bad medication in steroids and then worry. And oh, yeah. I'm not sure if, if you or anybody else here has like a, a suggestion, but I, I just found that was always like would cause me anxiety in the clinic. Yeah, it's so that's so hard because it's like, you know, you don't have you're not working with anything. Right. Like, I think it depends on how high your suspicion is. Like, I think if everything is there and you're like this, I have a very high suspicion. You can think about you can think about starting treatment and just get them into the providers, you know, within the day or two, the people that you need them to see. Um, but if it's just the headache and you're not completely convinced, I, I think it's fair to kind of like get some blood work and follow up the next day with them and, you know, get a set rate, get some basic labs, see how things look. Um, it's all, you know, there's no, like it's, it's, there's a lot of gray area, but I think it depends how high your suspicion is. And, you know, there's, I, I think, Definitely rheumatologists and I'm sure ophthalmologists, whenever, you know, if, if there's any like strong suspicion for GCA, I mean, they're, we're always happy to get them in within, you know, 24 hours because it's something that we know we want to get on really quickly. Um, but it's, yeah, it's so, it's hard. It's hard for us too, you know, it's like if you have, it's better when you have, when you have some blood work or something else to guide you. But I think in that case, you should do like the, the physical exam and check for breweries, check for blood pressures, pulses, and make sure there's nothing else going on. I guess the question I have is how how requisite is the the, the biopsy itself? I think in, in some of the reading I did for this, even in one series, patients with a negative biopsy about half the time ended up somewhere on the GCA PMR spectrum. So, like, how mm. how aggressive are you about the biopsies, and how truly helpful is it? I mean, I think most of us would say definitely go for it um, because you really are committing someone to like one to two years of of steroids, um, and that is a risky thing to do. So I think that it's important to get the biopsy and, you know, there's a, I think people are getting better at doing the biopsies because we know that there's kind of like skip lesions. Um, and so you really want to get a good piece. I think they say like one to two centimeters at a minimum, um, to make sure you're not missing like the skip area. And I think the yields have kind of gone up, um, cause people are knowing more about this, but, um, I think it's nice to have the biopsy, uh, because just to justify, especially if it's like a very, you know, not a clear case. 
I'd always want to get the biopsy. <laughs> for, for the interest of time, I wanted to ask a quick question about PMR and then kind of move on to, to treatment. For PMR, what is a, what's like a common mistake you see people making maybe in the diagnosis of this, or what's something that we shouldn't miss about PMR as primary care docs when we're seeing patients? Um, so I think it's just, you know, like the, the over, there's a big overlap between GCA and PMR. So, you know, about 50% of patients with GCA also have PMR, you know, you're looking for stiffness in the, in the shoulders and the, and the hips, um, you know, stiffness in the morning. And this, again, it's not, it's, it's hard to say, right? So a lot of people have pain in their hips and shoulders and you can diagnose it even with unilateral symptoms. But, um, I think you always just have to have a, a suspicion for it and, and especially in the, uh, in the flip side. So if someone is, has PMR, um, every time you're seeing them in follow-up, you want to make sure you're asking them about GCA symptoms. So you want to make sure you're asking about vision changes, temporal pain, jaw claudication, because you don't want to miss that. You know, if you're treating for GCA, you're definitely, you're definitely being treated for PMR, but the flip's not true. And something I came across is that the temporal relationship can vary a lot. Um, is, is your experience as well that the PMR and GCA can kind of either one can follow the other or happen at the same time? Yeah, no, that's definitely, that's definitely true. And you can see kind of one come up as you're tapering the, the steroids over time as well. So it's always, you always want to ask about that at every visit, all those symptoms. When, when I'm in clinic, let's say this person, they're like, I had, they had a little bit of vision loss. They had temporal artery tenderness on exam. They've been fatigued. They've been losing weight. I'm like, this is GCA. This is, they also have temporal arteritis. I'm going to start them on steroids. What, Mm -hmm. what should be my steps from there? It might also include like, who should I refer them to and what, what dose of medication? Uh, That's uh, multiple questions there, but if you could kind of talk us through that as a starting point. Yeah, I think a case like that, you know, there's a very high suspicion. So (laughs) I think start prednisone, right? And so they generally, we think one milligram per kilogram, which comes out to about 60 milligrams in most people have prednisone. So you can just start, you know, prednisone 60 milligrams a day. And worst case scenario, you get them in with a rheumatologist or the next day and they say, no, this is not that. And you stop it. You know, it's not, it's not the end of the world. So, um, I think if you have a high enough suspicion, you should start it, but you should also, you know, make a point of calling a rheumatologist and getting them in within a day or two. And then, you know, you can also talk to ophthalmology. I think typically, you know, people will have, get them in with me and then I'll reach out to ophthalmology and get them in, you know, the same day or the next day. Um, but I think rheumatology ophthalmology is who you should be reaching out to and make the phone call if you have to. Um, and, and just, and explain, you know, explain the situation. Uh, what's ophthalmology's role in this? What, what are they going to be doing for the patient in, in general when you send them there? Um, a good eye exam just to see if there is any kind of damage at that point. If the patient is, if the patient's complaining of vision changes, if they're not complaining of vision changes, um, you know, I don't rush to get them into ophthalmology. So I'll just treat them if, if they have everything else going for them. Um, but if they're reporting any kind of vision changes, again, that's one thing that like, I think we as internists, like I can't do a good eye exam. I don't know many people who can. And I don't feel comfortable if the patient's saying they have vision changes and I don't necessarily think it's GCA. Um, I definitely want them to see opto to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Cause they can, they can help you with the differential, like to them, does this seem like vision losses from GCA or could they say maybe this is another process? It's kind of that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, and then the other thing is like, you know, in terms of the biopsy, like I said, biopsies are really important, but we, you know, we feel comfortable if you start as a primary care doctor, if you have a high suspicion, this happens all the time, they start the prednisone, send them to us, and then we'll kind of see what we think. Um, if we do want a biopsy, it's okay that the prednisone was started. Um, biopsies okay. remain positive for at least one to two weeks, if not, you know, up to a month. So you didn't ruin Ooh. anything by starting prednisone. Stuart is, <laughs> Stuart is double fist pumping at that, right. at that information. Very happy. <laughs> Except they're glycemic control. Yeah, I can handle that. Okay, this is a related question, but something that I, I always ask specialists because I get different answers from everybody. PCP prophylaxis for patients on high-dose steroids. Uh, when do you yeah. pull the trigger on that? That's a great question. So very controversial and... I think that the, I think the official answer is if someone's on, you know, more than like 20 milligrams of prednisone and, or any strong immunosuppression, um, it's something that you should consider. Um, in practice, I think it doesn't, it happens very, very rarely. Mm. And, and you're saying for, for the patients we're talking about, like patients with PMR or, uh, they're, they're so with, with polymyalgia rheumatica, those patients are. I believe the dose is lower. What dose, what would be like a starting dose for that of steroid? Yeah. So PMR generally 15 to 20 milligrams you start with, and then okay. you slow taper over one to two years. Um, GCA, you generally, like we said, 60 milligrams and taper. So it's something that you should consider, you know, in the GCA doses, but usually we don't see people in practice. I, I haven't, seen many people go on prophylaxis unless they're getting something like cyclophosphamide or something for another condition. Um, it's not often that people routinely use that, although it's probably something that we should be using more. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, I, I probably won't be pulling the trigger on uh, PCP prophylaxis <laughs> without, without the uh, guidance of a, of a specialist anyway. Yeah. There, so there are some newer agents or, I guess, kind of steroid-sparing agents. How often are those being used? Stuart, did you have something? Uh, after we're done recording this, I've got a question for Brian. <laughs> okay. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, apparently, did one you want everyone else to leave residents the Residents know him. <laughs> Whoa. Right, uh, Delaney. Really. David She's Delaney. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dana, <laughs> She's great. Hey, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh, stop. Uh, obviously, Stuart is trolling Facebook while we're recording. Well, no, I, I, no, I'm seeing if anyone posted any questions for us to answer. That's valid. Okay, thank you, Stuart. Yeah, yeah. Uh, David so Lady. Once again, uh, keeping with history, Stuart has derailed the show. I believe, I believe, I just Becca I believe, derailed the Dmards. Yeah, I think you yeah, were talking about Dmards. Yeah, I like it. Brian, new guy coming in with the puns. I like it. Mm, great. <laughs> it's just what we needed was more puns. This is. <laughs> <laughs> DMARDs, yeah. I'll talk about DMARDs. Um, <laughs> typically, typically, you know, we're just using prednisone um, tapers. Uh, you know, historically, people, if people were, you know, flaring or needing longer courses of prednisone than the usual, um, people would think about methotrexate as a DMARD. Studies are mixed on that. Um, but, you know, but it's it, it has been used often um, as a steroid sparing agent. Um, but the exciting thing is that just a few months ago, um, tocilizumab, which is an antibody against the IL-6 receptor, was approved for GCA. So it was the first steroid sparing agent approved for GCA management. And so 
Um, I think that most rheumatologists are kind of uh, in favor of starting this from the get-go now um, to to, uh, try to... um, you know, be able to taper off the the steroid dose, doses. I think, and, and the end point, the end point from that study, uh, which I very cursely uh, looked at, it looked like it was basically like the total dose of steroid. And I think like they they just calculated the total dose of steroid. It was dramatically less uh, when they were yeah. on that. Yeah, yeah, and also um, they had longer. Um, response, you know, when they received, when they were on the tocilizumab. So, um, I think it was a very strong study and I think, I think it's going to be, you know, become, become used more frequently now, which is nice because all we really had was steroids for GCA. I realized that we, we sort of skipped over talking about imaging like ultrasound and MRI is is there anything as Probably my fault? Is there <laughs> Yeah, whatever. It's it's uh it's free we're free willing here. Uh is there anything we really need to know? Should we be ordering any of this as primary care? Is that really kind of this the subspecialists who are going to be ordering those tests? Yeah, I don't think you need to order it in primary care. I think the patient at that point should be plugged in with room. Again, that's another controversial issue is, you know, patients with with just temporal arthritis, do you need to image them? And I think it's very, you know, center dependent, but I think most people are not, not imaging just based on temporal arteritis with, you know, looking at the aorta in terms of, so yeah, so I don't think that's something that you need to do. I think that's something that, you know, the specialists will, will be doing. Studies are actually looking good on ultrasound for temporal arteritis. Um, it's just very, um, operator dependent. And so I think, um, it depends on, you know, the center and in terms of sensitivity and specificity. Um, but it, it is a potential imaging that could be good for, for diagnosing temporal arteritis. Okay. So not, not, not so much for us to worry about. Yeah. I, I saw that they were doing that. They were, it looked like for polymyalgia rheumatica, they were also, uh, kind of ultrasounding the, the bursa and the shoulders and the hips and yeah, that, that yeah. can kind of provide a little bit. It wasn't terribly sensitive, but it, it was a little bit more specific for, for all those tests in general. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, any other questions for Becca before we let her go? Um, no. Okay. I had a question. <laughs> uh, I, I, saw, I saw some stuff out there that was kind of equivocal about possible implication of VZV. In, in temporal Ooh. arteritis, but it's kind of mixed. Any Is that rumor going anywhere? Is that just... Um, That's you know, a good question. Um, I've heard of this, but I'm not sure, you know, where it stands on that, if that's like a possible etiology. Um, I think it's probably still in the works. Yeah. So what was, Brian, what was it? I, I did not see this. Was it in, What was it insinuating? That patients who have varicella zoster virus? It, yeah, it was more like... Uh, uh, pathologic studies, like they take the the uh, temporal artery biopsies and look for virus in them, and and some studies were finding correlations, some weren't. But you're also looking at older folks who who might have you know reactivation of VZV anyway, or other other reasons to have that there by coincidence. So right, got it. Oh, I have something else to say. Can I say? Oh, you could. Yeah, you're the boss. <laughs> you're the boss. <laughs> we talked about PCP, but I wanted to say for for the steroid dosing. Um, 
make sure you do bone protection. So, you know, patients get stuck on steroids for like one to two years and it's something that is so often neglected. So they should be on prophylaxis for, you know, their bone health. So calcium, vitamin D, and when you're using doses for PMR or vasculitis, they should also be getting in most cases, uh, you know, something like a bisphosphonate. So ACR has a really nice algorithm for glucocorticoid induced osteoporosis. Um, and guidelines for that. So it's just something to definitely think about. And that's missed all the time by, by everyone, by specialists as well. So that's a, that, and that reminds me of a, a case from Cashlack. I had a, an 85 year old gentleman who basically, uh, he had giant cell arteritis, temporal arteritis, and he ended up, he, he had just lost all this weight cause he was pre-diabetic and then when he went on the steroids, he gained like, he gained like oh. thirty pounds. He was having like steroid myopathy. His he he developed uh, steroid induced diabetes as well. So that's another complication, yeah. which is unfortunate. I mean, it's it's like the worst. This di- I think the worst part of the diagnosis is like they they get better pretty quickly on steroids from what I've seen. But the, the right. all the side effects for the steroids are what yeah. the, the curses of this disease. Yeah. Exactly. And so, so hopefully that's going to get better, you know, with our IL-6, you know, but, mm. um, you always want to think about, there's so many side effects to steroids, even though they're wonderful. Becca, this has been awesome. And I'd like to ask you for your take-home points. Don't be afraid to call your specialists. These are cases where you should pick up the phone and call because it really, really helps out and good review of systems and rheumatology. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I got it. Review of systems. Yeah. Even though Stuart accused me of, <laughs> that, of being, fine. <laughs> not doing a review of systems. I'm going to shotgun that one, dude. Both of you. <laughs> that was that was Dr. Williams or Paul Williams. Yeah, I know. Who uh, it's okay. came up with that one. Uh, Becca, so that's that's it. That's the show. You're, <laughs> now you're famous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Round of applause. Thanks for having me. It's great. <laughs> This has been another episode right. of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find I'll show make- notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And please sign up to receive our mailing list where you'll get a copy of the show notes each week emailed to you. That's at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And send us your emails to thecurbsiders at gmail.com recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show and check out our page on facebook instagram and on twitter at the curbsiders we are now going to be doing facebook live once or twice a month so look for us on there until next time i've been dr matthew frank Watto, and i'm dr Stuart kent brigham good night brian <laughs> i'm brian brown excellent that one <laughs> Are we? <laughs> oh, hey, pal. Hollywood Paul Williams. That's what we called him in residency. <laughs> <laughs> Just cannot get enough attention. It's kind of why. <laughs> Ha, <laughs> ha,